Blessed Reformation to all of you. We're going to be picking up at Proverbs chapter 20. We had just done the first three verses last Sunday, so we'll pick up with verse 4, get a little running start here and do that. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so as we look at this subsection of Foolish Son, dealing with fools and foolishness, to summarize, we've seen drunkenness, disobedience, and drama. Those are all to be avoided. Chapter 20, verse 1, we were reminded of the dangers of alcohol, that they, of course, this is a great blessing from God to increase our joy and even our tolerance of the world. (laughs) Isn't it kind of like the mute button on life? (laughs) But it can be abused and it can lead us astray. And so that's the warning here in this proverb is not to be led astray by... um, drink which can lead us into mockery or brawling. Then, of course, uh, disobedience, the terror of the king. And disobedience to authority comes with consequence. And it should be a, uh, it should be a, a fearful thing for us to stand against authority. Of course, where that authority is in conflict, that human authority is in conflict with God, then we should stand with boldness and confidence. And then drama, of course, Verse 3, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Or it is an honor for a man to keep from striving, since any fool can start a quarrel. So the art of not getting engaged in drama. And then on to 4, which is a theme that recurs throughout the Proverbs, so I don't think we'll spend much time here. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. So I I suppose if you meditate on this, he's not in tune with the season. Of course, it's more than that. As a sluggard, he's not in tune with anything. He's just in tune with his self. And then, since he doesn't sow, neither will he reap. All right, five. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. An enigmatic proverb to some degree, but we've seen another proverb or two like this. And if you put them all together, the sense here would seem to be the same as the others, that um, what within a man knows a man except for his own spirit, that kind of sentiment of we are uh, individual, we are subjective, we are, in in a sense, isolated. And yet, a man of understanding can draw that out. So I think, of, I think of pastors, I think of good therapists, uh, Christian therapists, 
Those, that's a very rare thing, but they do exist. And I think of uh, wise parents, um, wise friends that can help draw out that which is within a man. Here is uh, Steinman's take. This verse speaks of the advice or counsel that God pours into those who are wise through faith. Divine wisdom flowing and welling up within the believer motivates him and acts as his advisor and guide. A wise person can draw out this profound wisdom like one draws water from a deep well. So that's a slightly different take, but I suggest it to you because it does show the nature of the Proverbs. You can look at them from one angle or another and see different things. All right, we'll get a little further. Six, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Obviously, this has great application, even broadly, in terms of earthly realities. We have lots of people who say they will be there for us, and then they're not. An often lamented reality is we don't think, or we think we have friends, but when the rubber hits the road, they turn out not to be. Certainly, this proverb evokes that sentiment. Um, Many can proclaim their steadfast love. And of course, that's true even amongst Christians. Many proclaim their love for the Lord right up until any suffering or any difficulty or any trial hits, and then all of a sudden, I'm the victim and I can't believe God did this to me. The victim mentality that's rife in our culture is also rife in our spirituality, where how much can we endure from the hand of God before we get irritated with God? Not much. And then instantly we're playing the victim card. Kind of silly. Uh, Again, just very practical wisdom related to that. When you're feeling like God is letting you down, turn that on its head by giving thanks. Start someplace very basic, like even what's right in front of your face. Or start out very basic, like what was given to you by God early in life. Or recount or recall two, three, ten episodes in your life that God has spared you from some sort of disaster or not let you bear the full consequences of your sins. Or even center your meditation on the church and on what he gives for you. Remember our sanctuary, remember Christ crucified, that God loved you before the foundation of the world and gave his son for you. And what's more, he made you elect from before the foundation of the world to receive this message of his son, the Holy Spirit, to bring you to faith and sustain you in that faith. One way, shape, or form, he baptized you. He communes you and invites you to his altar, along with all his family, to receive the meal of his forgiveness, the meal of his love. Just start recounting these things and see how wonderfully your heart shifts and changes. Uh, Luther, of course... Apropos of Reformation Day, he liked to point out how David drove away the evil spirit from Saul. Do you remember how? With music. So the power of godly music, the power of uplifting song, um, the power of having a couple of hymns or at least stanzas of hymns memorized, even singing some joyful part of the liturgy. Who cares if it really fits or not? 
just singing can change our hearts and the hearts of those around us. So, of course, Paul tells us to converse with one another in hymns, songs, and spiritual uh, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, um, because it lifts up and strengthens us. It changes mood. It drives away the evil spirits. Which, by the way, we have a hard enough time believing the good spirits, the godly angels are all around us, but indeed they are. As the Catechism teaches us to pray, let your holy angel have watch over me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. So indeed, we believe that there are good godly spirits, the angels all around us. We should also believe that there are evil spirits all around us, affecting, afflicting, um, And we should pray fervently that God would deliver us from these things. But I figure this, I figure this. If the demons are going to be around pestering, and as soon as they sort of tip their hand, like, what's going on here? This isn't... Then we should, if they're going to make us miserable, we should return the favor. (laughs) So, you want to hang out here, that's fine. But you're going to be as miserable as I am. In fact, very soon, more miserable than I am. Because as I'm singing the songs of the Lord, or as I'm recounting his many blessings and goodnesses out loud... Out loud, do this out loud. Then uh, I will most certainly no longer be miserable, but they will increasingly be miserable. And resist the devil himself, the scriptures say. Resist the devil himself, and he will flee from who? From you, little old you and me, with our elbows and mustaches and silly ideas. This most powerful being... (laughs) will flee away from us uh, simply by, re- by resisting him with the word of the Lord, with the name of Jesus, with those blessings. That so much greater is the power of our Lord Jesus. Okay. So many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. There are many who depart even from the Lord at the first sign of trouble. A faithful man who can find. Christ Jesus is described as the faithful. (laughs) Full stop. The faithful. The faithful one. The faithful man. He is the one and only who is the, uh, the man who practices what he preaches. And who has indeed steadfast love and faithfulness. And the cross proves that. But as we're being conformed into his image, then we're being conformed into that same faithfulness to bless the Lord whether he gives, to bless the Lord whether he takes away, to bless the Lord in all circumstances. Indeed, that is part of our spiritual training, part of our exercise in the faith. That's the language of the Book of Concord, the exercising of our faith. You know, when you go exercise at the gym, is it a pleasant experience? No, neither is the exercise of faith. In fact, if it's a pleasant experience, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. (laughs) You go to the gym and you're like, this is lovely. You may as well not be there. (laughs) And same with life. Same with life. This life is uh, not meant for ease. This life is not meant for happiness. This life is meant for holiness. This life is meant for exercise. This life is meant for growth. And indeed, our salvation is accomplished, but we most certainly are not. We most certainly have not yet attained, as St. Paul himself says. So there, there's this beautiful, beautiful reflection of Christ and this reflection of who we want to be and who we should aspire to be. 
All right, let me pause there. I've done enough chit-chatting for a second. Let's see if you have any, uh, any thoughts, any comments, questions about any of the Proverbs we've hit today. Not yet. All right. Have some sips of coffee along with me. We'll, we'll get the wheels turning here. On then to verse 7. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Okay, so again, it's, I I don't know, this is funny. It's kind of a funny reflection, because you have wicked people who will tell you exactly as it is. You'll have a kind of wicked person who has integrity. It's an odd thing. They'll tell you exactly how it is, and exactly what they think, and exactly what they want to do it. And you kind of like, you kind of admire them for their honesty, for their integrity, but it is the integrity of a wicked person. And of course, then it's going to have its limits and its perversions, especially in those things pertaining to God, self-deceptions. Here, the righteous who walks in his integrity, one who entrusts himself to God, one who entrusts himself to Christ, and then walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. That is a wonderful statement. I think Organically, his children are going to see his example and learn that integrity and learn that even when there's a cost to that integrity that has to be borne, so what? Did Christ not bear a cost for his integrity? Absolutely. Then we're marching in the right way. So organically, I think that's the case. But secondarily, uh, God is, I, I think God promises this. I think God promises to bless the children of the man who walks in integrity. I think otherwise it wouldn't be stated in the scriptures. God will see to it that the children of the the man of integrity will be blessed. Again, I don't wish happiness for my children. I wish holiness for my children. Very different. Very different. And also alleviates me of all the pressures of the world. Are you providing them with this opportunity? What about that opportunity? Have you protected them from this? Have you protected them from that? And just this kind of insanity we have where before children are out of the womb, we want to kill them. And then after they're out of the womb, we want to worship them. So, yeah, that's really the problem of our age, isn't it? But to look at children and say, these are God's children, and I have temporal care over them, and... I don't want them to be happy per se. I want them to be holy. And I don't want them to have an easy life per se. I want them to have a life in which they're exercised in the faith. And when those, when those afflictions come upon them from the hand of the Lord, I want to be wise and prudent as an earthly father, as an underfather, to pay attention to what he's doing and not rush into the rescue all the time. Because there are wonderful lessons that children can learn under a father, an earthly father's care, where he can set the boundaries of the lesson being learned, right? Okay, so again, having integrity, walking in integrity is a blessing to children from God. And that blessing is what I was just meditating on, that um, by blessing, it doesn't mean that God's going to, you know, if if you're a person of integrity, God's going to have your kids riding around and... Ferraris and Lamborghinis and sitting by the beach because as far as God's concerned that's a waste of a life sorry to disappoint 
So true blessings belong to his children after him. Fundamental battle of reality is the battle of truth versus lies. Christ is the truth. Satan is the liar. Ooh, I can bring this up. The one little word that fells him. (laughs) From Luther's hymn. So, of course, I've grown up singing that hymn. And I always thought the one little word that fells him is something like Christ. Or justification. or Maybe if you think of the Lord's Supper, the word is. But these are the little words that fell him. It's not. As Luther penned the hymn, Luther is first and foremost a student of Jesus. And what Luther has in mind, this is all explicit. This isn't my, <laughs> this isn't my personal theory. Luther writes this. That what the one little word is, is the word liar. And he gets that from who? Jesus. Jesus calls Satan the liar and the father of all lies. So, and it is, it is in terms of the uh, spiritual battle, the one little word that fells the devil. He comes with his accusations, which are made false on account of Christ, on account of the debt of your sins and mine being nailed to the cross in his flesh once and for all, that debt being paid and wiped out, the slate itself being thrown away. So when he comes accusing you of your sins, which is always his most dangerous accusation, the proper response is liar. All his work is is done through lies. So the fundamental battle of every Uh, The fundamental battle of the cosmos is the battle of truth versus lies. And then if you want to study church history, let's say, or Old Testament history, which is, of course, the earlier history of of the church, when you look at these things from age to age, the battle takes different forms. So should we worship Yahweh alone or Yahweh and the other gods? Or should we worship... um, one God uh, in three persons, or should we worship um, one God with the Son and the Spirit being created beings? These kinds of questions are questions of truth versus the lie, but the, the, the only thing that changes over time is the nature of the fight. So at the time of the Reformation, you had the truth of our justification in Christ alone and apart from the works of the law, as Paul says very clearly in our epistle from Romans 3. But I think the battle has, I mean, while we want to retain all the truths of these former battles, the battle has shifted. The public sphere is not arguing, the, the church at large is not arguing right now about justification. We want to retain that as essential as the Trinity or the Christology or um, the uh, Pelagianism disputes and uh, Augustine's... Uh, Solution there. We want to retain the truth in all the eras, but we want to recognize that right now the battle is different. It's still the same. It's truth versus lies. So to have integrity then is to realize what the truth of God's word is and to speak that truth, which you know you're on target if it gets uncomfortable. If whatever you're saying is true... But you're not really uncomfortable. It's not really, I mean, then you're not really in the fight. I mean, you might be off on the, 
on the sides of the battle, but when you're in the heat of the battle, you're going to sense it within yourself, you're going to sense it within others. When you're speaking the uncomfortable truths, that's, they're uncomfortable for a reason. That's where the spiritual warfare is taking place. So to have that integrity, to not be obnoxious with the truth, but nonetheless to speak the truth, that's what we need, and I think that that's what this proverb is uh, calling us to. So much to, uh, much to learn then and much to be bold about, much to be brave about, much to be strengthened where we're weak and strengthen others where they're weak and allow ourselves to be strengthened where we find weaknesses within ourselves. Okay, anything? All right, there's a hand. Sorry, it took a few minutes for the, co- uh, the coffee to percolate through the strata. Of my yeah, brain me too. To come to this, uh, <laughs> right, good. Um, uh, kind of going back towards uh, uh, verse 4, uh, a slugger does not plow in season, and uh, at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of relate this to, I guess, our homelessness problem a little bit, mm. and I agonize this between a sluggard versus someone who actually has uh, a mental, physical problem versus, you know, an addiction or... Or, or I, I biblically uh, cor- correlated to like you know the beggar at the temple gates, mm-hmm. and, and it's always a struggle because I'm not sure which person do I have. Do I have the sluggard here? Do I have someone who actually is in physical or mental needs, or do I have the beggar at the gate? And I'm not sure whether to help or despise, and that's just a struggle. I, I just I know it's a big topic. We can't, uh, but just a quick comment, or just is that kind of like what this verse is addressing somewhat? Yeah, sure, sure. Being sluggard comes sluggardly comes with a curse, and it's not our job to lift that curse. And someone who doesn't and refuses to sow, then doesn't reap. In some sense, you're even working at counter purposes with God. I mean, it may still be a mercy, but you're working at counter purposes where God's like, no, if you do X, you're going to get Y. And so to, to slide in there breathlessly, like, well, I've got to save this person from the consequence of their actions. Yeah. Well, and then many of them, of course, don't want to be. I think, I think if, we had a godly, if we had a godly ruler, it would take just that. Our homeless problem could be over within uh, a year. A year. You tell people their choices are to uh, get a job. And start participating in society. You have that option. Um, you have the option to be um, uh, sent off to an island. Maybe just up to Canada. <laughs> Where's Trudeau? Let's send them all there. And then, you're, and then those who uh, are truly mentally ill, we can afford to... Uh, take care of them. No doubt about it. We need, um, this, is, this is going back to last week's session uh, on deterrence and the law as deterrent. I've been meditating on this because in our first Corinthian study as men, we've come to this section that talks about husbands and wives and duty one unto another. And not just Luther, but prominent church fathers going all the way back I was most recently finding it in Chrysostom, say that adultery, um, they they look to the Old Testament scriptures, adultery is punishable by death. 
And why they, why they say this, of course, is because adultery strikes at the heart of the family. It's a huge abuse. And here we're talking specifically about breaking up a marriage. Okay, So it's a huge abuse. But then what the havoc that that causes is now you have an adulterer, an adulteress, who's going to do what? Get remarried? And the church is going to bless that? Why would the church ever bless that? It'd be better for them to be dead. That's the kind of... Uh, logic you find in the church fathers. Now, we've completely lost track of all this, and it sounds harsh and draconian and backwards, or are we so far gone and so perverse we can't even see how life should be lived with integrity? So then, you have all kinds, I mean, so if you have this kind of harsh deterrent and these harsh consequences in place, you nip things in the bud, you don't have these downstream huge problems. Where we have downstream huge problems now, it's going to take, I mean, it's either going to collapse or it's going to take some draconian solution. I'm sorry, that's just the reality. And the, dracu- the draconian solution would be like, hello, would you like to go to the labor camp? Or would you like to be reintegrated into society? Oh, you're speaking complete nonsense? You're going to jail. Meanwhile, you're going to have, and you can have psychological care in jail. Meanwhile, the jails will go through, or the prisons, I should say prisons, that's what I have in mind, will go through a similar process. And if there's the death penalty for adultery, if there's a death penalty for very basic but fundamental transgressions, well, it's not going to be long till we don't have criminals anymore either. Because you can do the math there, and criminality will decrease down to low percentage points, as it once was, because we actually have laws that actually punish, due process, of course, but punish criminals and do so expediently in such a way that it's an actual deterrent. So did you see the two guys who, among other things, on their joyride ran over, I think he was a uh, retired fireman, and killed him? Did you see them sitting in court? laughing and mocking, they know that they're completely safe. They know that nothing's going to happen. They think it's all a big joke. People like this have no place in society. This is what the... And and when we don't execute criminals... So capital punishment in the scriptures is not an option. If you shed the blood of another man, the scriptures say, your blood will be shed. We're not talking about self-defense. We're not talking about the military. We're not talking about the police. We're talking about criminal acts. That's what the scriptures say. To show mercy is no mercy at all. It's a subversion and a perversion of an entire people and an entire morality and an entire society. And we're simply reaping what we've sown for decades of being soft on this stuff, decades of being unjust and unrighteous. And now if somebody breaks into your home, and you try to defend your family, you're every bit as likely to go to prison as the person who breaks into your home. We have government and we have society now who are punishing the righteous and rewarding the wicked. There are some states in our union where you have a duty to retreat within your own home. It means that if somebody comes in to do harm to you or your children, 
those of you who are in law enforcement or, or lawyers, please correct me if I'm wrong on any of the details or wrong in the main. But you have a duty to retreat within your home. If they come in to harm you or your children, you have to herd them all up and scatter them all out and maybe leap out the window to avoid uh, conflict. And only when it's absolutely unavoidable can you actually physically defend yourself. This is justice and and righteousness put on its head. And so it's so systemic that, again, it's going to lead to a collapse and a new regime, a new rebuilding, or it's going to need to be corrected by rather, uh, from our standpoint, draconian and uncomfortable ways. But again, if Christian people aren't willing to think these things and aren't willing to think biblically because, oh, my iPhone and, oh, I want to make sure that, like my tweets, everything else in life is nice, then we're going to continue having what we have. And the solutions that the state is coming up with right now are continue to limit the ability of righteous people to act righteous. Continue to limit that ability while the wicked just, like, like a vacuum, just suck in that space. Right? And that's, that's exactly what's happening. So how hard is it for a criminal in the state of California to get a firearm and do mayhem? Pretty darn easy, apparently. What about in Chicago, where you got the, I think they're junior high kids, opening their backpacks in a gym, showing that they've got not just Glocks, but automatic Glocks. Pretty hard for those, uh, those kiddos to get firearms in Chicago, one of the most highly gun-controlled cities in our nation. Now, what about a law-abiding citizen who would use that to defend the innocent or himself? Extremely difficult and extremely expensive. See how slanted and unrighteous the government has become? See how upside down it's all become? Uh, The horrible tragedy that took place in Maine was in a bowling alley. Why weren't there any CCW, uh, concealed carry people there, um, to help stop that? Because it was a gun-free zone, also known as a criminal's welcome zone. Violent criminals welcome to act with impunity zone. Uh, Much of this has to do with the feminization of our culture and the lack of men to be men. And this is men's work. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to women, but when women whose job, whose nature is to care and nurture and keep safe, when they squawk about these kinds of things, it's our job as men to politely ignore because it is our job as men to provide and protect. And protection sometimes requires manly duties that women will not understand because it's contrary to their nature. The godly ones will. The intelligent ones will. The women in this room, of course, will. But not all women will understand. And that's really, I mean, it's at the root of the nature of war. It's at the root of the nature of justice. It's at the root of the nature of God. So these are the things that we have to... um, Again, this has to begin with the church. So um, you asked a question about homelessness like 40 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I got... uh, The different question is, um, 
blessed are the children after him. And I, I'm thinking of your dad when I talk with him. And uh, now you, you are a blessing to us mm. that he was a blessing to you and his, you're growing up. Yeah, well, thank you for that compliment. And I know um, my father has walked with integrity, and I am blessed by the Lord. So God be praised for that. Okay, so on to eight. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. A beautiful picture of Christ here, of course, as he returns in judgment. Uh, one of the most impressive mosaics, please tell me it's still there, Vicar, is the Lord returning in judgment. Is that as you enter the library? Uh, is that where that is located? Do you remember? Do you remember? I'm sorry to put you on the It's either spot. the library or Leia. There's two different mosaics, and I can't recall which is Ah, which. yeah, yeah, yeah. That might be. Okay, there's this beautiful mosaic of Christ returning in judgment, and he's, he's crowned with thorns. I think this particular one, he's got the flaming sword coming out of his mouth from Revelation, and he's there to do business. And it's wonderful, because as you realize that he's your Savior, he's there to do business on your behalf. <laughs> So I think this is a, just a glorious picture of Christ, a king who sits on the throne of judgment, winnows all evil with his life. When you winnow, you, um, you blow things, right? You use a fan or something else, and the, the chaff, which is lighter, gets blown away, and the grain remains. It's a beautiful picture of the, of the winnowing of judgment. So uh, God will come and winnow the world, and the chaff, the wicked, will blow away like the nothing they are. And um, that which is solid, that which is wholesome, that which is godly and good grain, um, that's us, abide and remain. So, a king sits on his throne of judgment, winnows all evil with his eyes. It's, it's a beautiful picture of, and it's also a beautiful picture of a righteous king. There are biblical examples of righteous kings, and uh, righteous in degree. But the most righteous kings that we, the, the kings that we look to in the Old Testament and say, now that was the best king, guess what he was? Draconian. Uncompromising. He was destroying the plurality of religion, the plurality of cultures. He was, he was violently destroying them and burning them along with their priests and any of their worshipers zealous enough to try to defend their quote-unquote sacred sites. So a true objective cleansing took place under the kings that we look up to and say, oh, would that we had a, a David, would that we had a Josiah, would that we had a Hezekiah. Are you sure about that? Because it's going to be very much different than your sentiments. It's going to be very draconian, swift, and violent when righteousness comes and when reform comes. Okay, and then likewise, when Christ comes, I mean, we already know he reigns over all things. That's why he ascended into heaven. Uh, in Revelation, where um, the heavens are apocalypsed, are unveiled and revealed to us, you see the Father and you see the Spirit. You see the one seated upon the throne and shrouded uh, or yeah, encircled and sphered by um, the prismatic colors of the rainbow and his visage just like dazzling flashing stones uh, shining with light that's almost too bright to look at. 
And then you see the, the spirit like this giant sevenfold candelabra, which is why we have sevenfold ca- candelabras in our sanctuary to remind us of that, uh, to evoke the connection between the Old Testament uh, sevenfold candelabra um, that sat in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And exists truly in heaven and now uh, also then shows up in Christian worship. But the spirit depicted as these flames of fire, uh, the sevenfold flames of fire, which then also become burning eyes in this vision that, see, that search throughout all the earth. Just glorious. But there's a, there's a spot missing. There's an emptiness. You have the father and you have the spirit, but you don't have the son. And he dramatically, gloriously ascends into heaven. The ascension into heaven is the most underestimated, underappreciated of all the Christological acts. The ascension absolutely, fundamentally changes everything and evokes complete reform in heaven, a violent reform in heaven. So Christ is immediately comes up into that vacuum and void and is enthroned. And now is between the Father and the Spirit enthroned. And it's so beautiful because now to see the Father sitting on the throne, you have to look through the Son, who is also in the form of a lamb, seven horns and seven eyes, full power, full wisdom and understanding. He is yet slain. And so to even see and behold the Father, you have to see him through the lens, as it were, of Christ slain. And those, those seven eyes of the Lamb are one with the seven eyes of the Spirit, the seven eyes of the candelabra burning with fire. And the, then, of course, all the angels fall down in worship um, at this sight and at this revelation of what's happening there. When Christ is enthroned, immediately draconian things begin to happen. And heaven goes through violence like heaven has never gone through before. The war in heaven wasn't, as John Milton popularized and as even my kids came home the other day saying, had to correct them, the war in heaven did not happen before the fall of Adam and Eve. The war in heaven, and we know that because Satan can go up into heaven, into the council, and talk with God about Job, and then come down. They've got access into heaven. It's when Christ is enthroned as the king, and he is there right now reigning, that war breaks out in heaven. Because like a good king, he is going to reform heaven. He is going to change heaven. No longer will the evil one and his minions be able to come up into heaven and accuse the brothers day and night, accuse the Christians day and night. Christ has come, and he has covered their sins, and he now reigns. Out they must go. So there is great violence in heaven, a profound war in heaven that takes place. When Christ comes down to earth, likewise, Revelation tells us, great violence, great war. The kind where Christ is riding a white horse and the blood of the enemies that he himself slays are so, fill the, so fill the city it's up to the bridle of his horse. So when Christ comes to set things right, it will be draconian and it will be violent. And all kings who would rule in righteousness are going to have to do this because compromises can't be made with that which is evil. That which is evil is by definition contrary to that which is good. There's no neutrality. There's no neutrality in this world at all. It's evil or it's good. 
And so I think that that is uh, something for us to keep our minds uh, sharp toward because it's not in vain that Paul says to put on the armor of God and pick up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We are doing battle here, and it's a spiritual kind of battle, but that the time for spiritual battle per se, spiritual battle as such, will come to an end, and the spiritual battle will become physical, and physically removed from the earth will be the wicked. It's one of the reasons why the resurrection, the general resurrection of all flesh occurs so that in their bodies, physically, the enemies of Christ will be removed. And then the new kingdom of Christ, the new reign, the new heavens and the new earth will begin, will commence. And all the various nations, we will retain our nationality. When I, when I am uh, raised from the dead, sorry to disappoint you, I won't be a Vietnamese woman. Okay? I will continue to be a white dude. All right, And you will continue to be what you are. And all the nations in our bodies will be glorified. And all the nations will then have peace with each other. The healing of the nations is the language of revelation. And it will commence. So away with this idea that there's no such thing as a nation. I don't see any color and blah, 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 blah. I mean, all of this is like, I don't know, preposterous. It's just lies. Okay, There are nations... We are different, and there will be people from every tribe and every nation gathered around the throne of God and in the new heavens and the new earth. And the healing of the nations will commence. So one of the most beautiful but overlooked contemplations we can have about the new heavens and the new earth is the great joy that we will have in society together. We all, because we're so self-centered, even now kind of think of the personal joys and the personal glories and this kind of thing. And how will it be for me? Ah, I mean, that's just like a, that's like kind of like a grain of sand on a beach. I mean, yeah, it's great and everything. But the true glory will be the society of men restored. And we'll be having neighbors that are true neighbors. And having nations that are truly, uh, you know, diverse and different and yet, able to come together as, as brothers in Christ and share in the divine worship and share in the making of all things new. I mean, again, that's when God, after God says it's, it's all good, six days, it's good, it's good, it's good, and on the seventh day he rests, it's good, but it's only just begun. Adam and Eve are supposed to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They're supposed to be lords. They're supposed to take all that God is and go out into the world and take this world that is rough and raw and natural and good and conform it into the glories of God. And that is very much a parallel, I mean, as a seed to an oak or as a infant to an adult, but parallel nonetheless to what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be about. God's not going to be like, okay, uh, the end, and we're all like frozen in time. The new heavens and the new earth come, and after the evil is driven away uh, violently then and powerfully, then everything will be, will be new, but it won't be finished. And again, if this is alien to you, you've got to go reread Revelation because it uses all these terms of process and progress. And what's going to happen then, 
by way of parallel is we will be given the new heavens the new earth to uh, increase the glory of God throughout that domain and so we will all right, lots of good things looking forward to, but we shouldn't shy away from, I don't know, there's this, there's this really stupid idea going around in Lutheranism. It's been going around for a long time that like, things like power are bad. Things like anger are bad. Things like violence are bad. I mean, these have to be concocted by people who don't read the scriptures, who just sit around in, in stuffy classrooms and smoke their pipes and congratulate themselves. I don't know where these ideas come from because anyone who's remotely familiar with the scriptures knows that these are impossible things to hold. Okay, off my soapbox there. Any thoughts you have or shall we uh, mosey on a little further? Yes, please. Mm-hmm. So are you talking about heaven like if you die right now and no, you find your way into heaven, or the new heavens and the new earth? Absolute, yeah, absolutely holiness. The new heavens and the new earth will be holiness, and I think increased, increasing holiness in, in ourselves, in, the, in our nation, in the interaction of the nations, in the, in the whole of the cosmos. Yeah. And I think we can, you know... Satan loves to take grains of truth and then weave a whole lie around it. And he does this with all false religions. But one of the grains of truth that I think he's um, taken and then wrapped the whole false religion of Mormonism around as the, the grain of truth would be um, probably, this, uh, probably the new earth will be something like um, the temple proper or Eden proper. And probably the whole of the cosmos, the whole of the stars, will become the domain of man. Because God made us physical to have lordship over all physical things. So we can wait and see if I'm wrong. But I have a hunch. And I'm not alone in that hunch. Yeah. Okay, so then uh, on to nine. (laughs) This is such a great proverb. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? How do you, how do you answer? Okay, no one. That's a valid answer. No one can say that. What's another valid answer? God makes my heart pure, I don't. Yeah, exactly. So the other answer is, uh, who can say, I can, you can. We all can on account of Christ. I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin uh, precisely because my heart is bound to Christ. I have put on Christ, to use the language of uh, St. Paul. I have put on Christ. I have made my heart pure. Of course it all comes as a gift. We don't need to get wound around the axle on the active language. If we do that, we're going to botch all the scriptures. I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin through faith in Christ and Him alone. Okay, good. I mean, obviously, more could be said there, but on to 10. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So wonderful. And ties in with earlier themes in Revelation. One of the, one of the things that Revelation points out about, about the, uh, the finality of the wicked world 
But I think we can also experience this microcosmically. Nations in decline experience this. Whether it's the end of the world or not, they all think it's the end of the world. It just ends up being the end of their nature, uh, nation. But it's a microcosm of the big thing. But this is one of the things that always happens, and Revelation points out. And that is that the weights uh, are become unbalanced or unequal, and s- same with the measures. So what's pointed out specifically in uh, Revelation is the injustice that you're paying way too much for what you're getting. You could also, of course, in our system, call that inflation. And then likewise, I mean, it's very easy for the government to rob you blind without taking a cent from your balance in your bank account. Print money. That instantly takes away. I mean, they can make your money worthless overnight and simply take that value out of your account. We don't, you, know, you don't even have to wait for digital currency per se to do that. But of course, if that comes out, avoid that like the plague. The, the point being then that unequal weights and unequal measures, thieves and thievery and financial injustice and financial persecution and um, even just, uh, I, sorry to give like a personal grouse here, but I think you'll probably resonate with it. I think my parents over the course of their entire marriage, um, maybe up to like 10 or 15 years ago, I don't know, I'd have to check with them, uh, survived off like the original washer and dryer that they bought and had like one microwave. I'm on my third microwave in like 10 years. I I sometimes think to myself like, what kind of world would it be where you could buy an appliance and it would work for 25 years? What would I do with all my excess funds and time? Um, what, what would it be if you could buy a house for $30,000? What would it be if you could, um, what would it be if you could get a repairman to come out and just do a decent job? <laughs> but the paints don't last as long. The repairs aren't as good. Nothing. The houses aren't built the way they used to. It's all trash. Right? To borrow a phrase from somebody else, we're, we're living in a trash world. And um, it, it absolutely uh, is, a, is a form of theft and thievery. And of course, that's true with forced obsolescence. You have forced obsolescence in your electronics, but that's just the easy one. Why do I have to get a new computer? Because they've just downloaded a program that castrates your computer. Uh, so you have to go get a new one. Uh, but the forced obsolescence is in every sector. Your house isn't built to last 100 years anymore. Your cars aren't built to last 10 years anymore. It's forced obsolescence all the way through, which just keeps you going lower and lower economically while you spend more and more to get less and less. It's the demise of every nation, and it's a microcosm for how the world, uh, the globe is at the end. And I think that this proverb obviously points it out. Solomon is so wise to see this. Um, even some 900 plus years before Christ. And then Revelation um, reveals this uh, to John and to us in the first century. Um, This is the way of mammon, and it's the way of fallen greed. And again, I think to echo our Lord's words, 
you cannot serve God and mammon. Because if you serve God and mammon, or if you try to serve God and mammon, you're going to just end up serving mammon. And when you serve mammon, the logical consequence is that we have what we have. Trash world. Okay, that's it for today. The Lord be with you.